actually still put a letter in an envelope and mail it to somebody. Thank you for doing that. Do you know that is a lost art? Mailing letters? I'm not talking about paying your bill. I'm not talking, even that's kind of a lost art. A lot of people do, do it online now, right? But letter writing is a lost art. I remember when I was a kid, I had a best friend, Eric, and we lived together in Roseburg. And then about 1978, my family moved away from Roseburg, and I moved away from my best friend. You ever had to do that before, moving away from your best friend? And it just tore me up that we were going to be apart by like 100 plus miles. And so we started writing letters to each other. And I just got to tell you, as a nine-year-old letter writer, I'm sure that the contents of that letter were not very engaging or entertaining. Um, And I don't even remember what we wrote. But what I remember was looking forward to getting a letter in the mail from Eric. Because it was like, yes, even though there's miles that separate us, we are still connected. And this predates social media. So you teens and and people who love that now, that's awesome. You can connect just like that, right? But we actually sat down with a piece of paper and a pencil and wrote. You know, now today, I can barely get through my name without my hand cramping. You know what I'm saying? I just don't write enough anymore. But you actually write down stuff. And then eventually, as we got older, writing wasn't enough for us. We wanted to talk to each other. But this was back when it wasn't free long distance, okay? This is, it cost money to talk. So what we'd do is we would sit down with this box that was about shaped like this, and you'd push down two buttons simultaneously and talk, and it would record your voice on, get this, a cassette tape. <laughs> Some of you, I just dated myself with saying cassette tape. And we would, we would talk about what's going on, and my side was side A, and then Eric, when he got it in the mail, he would turn it over and record on side B. And then we would basically do it wasn't FaceTime, but we'll call it voice time. We could at least hear each other's voice, right? And, and we would listen. And again, I can't tell you what was in the conversations that we had, because I don't remember, but I remember looking forward to getting that cassette tape and listening to what was happening in my friend's life. Why? Because we felt connected. Today, we're going to start a new series that's based on a letter. And it's not a letter Eric wrote me, or it's not a letter I wrote him. But this letter is equally as important. It's a letter from Paul to a church that he had never visited. See, Paul had planted a lot of churches throughout the Roman Empire during his ministry as a missionary, but this particular place he had never been to. He had never preached the gospel there. But he had, in his ministry in Ephesus, and many of you know about Ephesus because the Ephesian letter, when he was in Ephesus for two years, he actually had a man who got saved through his ministry named Epaphras. And Epaphras became a leader in the Colossian church that was about 100 miles away from Ephesus. And so this letter to the Colossians is written by Paul. And even though it's dated back to like AD 61, this is like a long time ago, all right? This letter is equally important for us today. Because what had happened is Paul was in prison in Rome. And you can learn about Paul's life in the book of Acts. But basically, he is in Rome because he's a Christian, He's imprisoned because of his faith in Christ Jesus. And while he's imprisoned in Rome, he's visited by Epaphras, who travels all the way from Colossae to Rome to see Paul, to provide for some of Paul's needs, and to minister to him, and then also to ask Paul what to do with this issue that he's having in his church. See, the the issue in the church in Colossians was that false teachers had infiltrated the church. 
and began to bombard this young, growing church with false doctrine. And what they taught was that Jesus was not the Son of God. Behind the the doctrine of what they were teaching was basically that anything that has physical matter is evil. So how could God clothe himself with humanity? That would be wrong. And so they were basically teaching that Jesus was, in fact, not the Son of God. And it was causing all kinds of problems because, you know what, the gospel is kind of based on what? Jesus, that he actually was the Son of God who came in the flesh, died on a cross. And so this, this heresy is... is very hard for the church. So Epaphras comes to Paul and says, hey, this is what's going on, but these people love Jesus with all their heart. They're growing in their faith, but we need some help. And so Paul writes this letter, and he sends it to Colossa through a couple of his friends while Epaphras stays. And this letter is critically important today as much as it was back in AD 61, because here's why. We live in a culture today that wants to make Jesus nothing more than maybe a historical figure. Others want to make him just a mythological figure, and they want to erase the reality of Jesus, certainly not the Son of God, certainly not our Savior, just a good guy, a charismatic teacher, but nothing more. And if that's truth, then the hope that I have is in vain. But I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is my Savior, and that's why this letter in Colossians is equally important, because here's the deal. We're going to begin this series called Rooted in Christ, and we need to learn what it means as followers of Jesus to be rooted in Christ so that we can face the culture in which we live, that we can live out our faith in real ways in the world in which we live, but also to know what that means, to have Jesus be the center of our life. Because here's the deal, your view of Jesus Christ will impact every area of your life as a parent, as a husband, as a wife as an employee or as an employer, Jesus should be centric to everything that we do in life. And that's what Paul's establishing in this letter, the centricity of Jesus, that he should be the center of the way that we live our life. And how much we need this today, especially in a culture that wants to balk at Christ followers and what it means to follow Jesus. So I'm going to challenge us in this series to really listen to Paul's writings, they're not dusty, old things that he said once upon a time to a galaxy far, far away, all right? This is like real stuff for today as much as it was for them. So I'm going to challenge you to, to listen, unlike Braxton. See, Braxton and Hollis, um, they had jobs in a California cotton mill. And, and uh, one day their foreman caught them sitting on the job, and Braxton was reading a letter that Hollis had received. Hollis had got a letter from his girlfriend, and he didn't know how to read. So he had Braxton read it for him, but the foreman was kind of upset what they were doing and said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm reading this letter because Hollis can't read, and I'm reading it for him. And he said, well, then why is there cotton in your ears? And he said, because Hollis doesn't want me to hear what his girlfriend is saying. (laughs) Some of you will get that later. My challenge today is to listen with your heart, listen with your ears, listen with your mind, and then read Colossians along with us in this series, because I want you to really understand what Paul is trying to say. So in Colossians, let's open it up. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seat in front of you. We encourage you to have that. It's a gift from us to you. A lot of you have your smart devices. We encourage you to use them here. 
If you've downloaded the Bible app, that's a great way to follow along, the YouVersion Bible app. Our notes are embedded in that Bible app. If you just go to the YouVersion, open it up, go to Menu, go to Events, you'll find Neighborhood Church there. Also, just go to albanync.org on your smart device, our website, albanync.org, and you can see messages, and our notes are right there for today as well, called Faith in Christ. But Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. What you'll notice about Paul's letters is that that's exactly what they are. They're a letter. They sound very letterly. In fact, most of the New Testament is letters that Paul wrote. And so here's the one that he wrote to this church he had never yet visited. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. One of the key themes in this opening passage is faith in Christ. He talks about how I have heard about your faith in Christ. Here's something I'm challenged with as I think about my life in context of living in family, in the community as a chaplain with law enforcement, here's something I think about. Do people see that I have a faith in Christ? Could somebody say of me, I have heard of your faith? A lot of us recognize that our faith is so private, so isolated, and some folks would say, well, that's the way I am. My faith is very private. Well, that is not a gospel faith, just so you know, all right? Uh, And that's what Paul is going to talk about. I heard about your faith. Even in the midst of false teaching coming into your church, I've heard about your faith because they have not yet begun to believe this false teaching. They've been holding on to the gospel that was preached to them from Epaphras. He says, I've heard about your faith. And the reason he could hear about it is because their faith wasn't just here. It was in their life. So Paul commends them for their faith, which he undoubtedly heard about from Epaphras when he came to visit. But what does it mean when Paul talks about having faith in Christ? What does that mean? What does that look like to have faith in Christ? There was a missionary named um, Vincent Donovan who ministered to the Maasai tribe of Africa in the 1960s and 70s. And part of his missionary work was to translate the gospel into their tribal language. And so he gets in and he lives among the Maasai people, begins to learn their language and how he can then take their words and interpret or translate scripture in a way they'll understand. And he was having a conversation with one of the elders of the tribe because they were talking about the word faith. And the word faith that had been used to this point by the missionary was not a very satisfactory word to the tribal leader. He said that your word you're trying to use in our language for faith just simply means to agree with. He said, but that's not what faith is. It's not just agreeing. In fact, he goes on to say this. He says, similar to a white hunter shooting an animal with his own gun from a great distance. Only his eyes and his fingers took part in that act. So he's talking about how faith would be just kind of like this distance thing if all it was was just agreeing to. 
But he said this. He said, we should find another word. He said, for a man really to believe or have faith is like a lion going after its prey. His nose and ears and eyes pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. And all the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap and the single blow to the neck with the front paw, the blow that actually kills. And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it in his arms and makes it part of himself. And that is the way a lion kills. That is the way a man believes. That is what faith is. Now, for this Messiah tribal leader to capture faith in those terms is remarkable. Because it isn't just some kind of I agree with. Some of you have hunted. In fact, we're entering hunting season, especially for you bow hunters. And, uh, and you know what it's like to look down the rifle at something you're trying to shoot at. But there's a distance between you. You're pretty uninvolved except for a few minor things. And can I tell you, that's not what the Christian faith is about. It's not just a few minor things. It's not a little tweak to your life where now maybe you come to church on Sunday and that's it. It involves all that you are. That's what faith is, being fully enraptured in what you're doing like a lion going after its prey. So this is how I would define faith, that faith is placing your confidence, your allegiance, and your identity in Christ. This is really what faith is. Placing your confidence, that means that you have a hope, a conviction within you that Jesus is who he said he is, and he is worthy of your trust and your confidence. It also means that he is worthy of your allegiance. We'll talk more about this in a moment. That means that he is willing and able to have all that you are. All of your allegiance would belong to him not being divided in the way you live, but he deserves your first and your best. It also means that you have the sense of a new identity, that your past is no longer counted against you, but now you're identifying yourself as one who is in Christ. And here's the thing. I know that today it's not popular to be identified as a Christian in our culture because there's a bunch of bad baggage that goes with the title Christian, and I get that. But you know what? With Jesus, there wasn't a lot of bad baggage in fact, people kind of like Jesus. They just don't like what the church made him look like in today's culture. But we can find our identity and the authenticity of who Jesus is, and that is what it means to have faith. Faith is not just something to think about, to discuss in a life group, but it is something that is meant to be lived out. Faith acts out what it believes. In fact, we're going to talk more about it, but the, but the reality is that faith should move us to the way we live our lives in action every day. But what does it mean to be in Christ? I, I can, faith means, I can see that faith should be in Christ, but what does it mean to be in Christ? Here's just a few things quickly, and then we'll move on. To be in Christ means to be taken into him so that he encompasses your entire life. See, this is the part that I know is hard for all of us. We like to compartmentalize, and so it's kind of like, well, okay, on Sunday you get me, Jesus, but on the rest of the time, not so much. I, I kind of like these things that I get to enjoy doing. These are my things that I get to do. No, what it means is we're actually letting him fully encompass our life to the point where there isn't a part of us that is outside of his lordship. 
That means that Christ influences and actually infuses every part of your life when it comes to how you interact in relationships, how you work, how you spend your money, the entertainment choices that you make. Those are all influenced by your walk with Christ. Your faith isn't just a Sunday thing. Your faith is like a life thing, right? It happens every day. To be in Christ means that you're committed to Him above all others, Now, I love being married, I love being a dad, but I've recognized in my own life that when I put him actually first and and focus on what it means to live in Christ, then all of my relationships get the benefit of that. That actually, I become a better husband if I pay attention to living in Christ. I become a better dad if I recognize what it means to father my kids in Christ, to lead my home as a man who loves Jesus. It begins to make a difference in how I interact in my life. Now, I love relationships, but I've recognized that if he becomes priority, everything else becomes better. To be in Christ means that he determines your attitudes and actions, because all of us know those are the two things that get us in trouble, our actions, our attitudes. Those are the things that cause us more grief than we care to have. But what would happen if Jesus actually influenced, determined how I'm going to act, what my attitude is going to be? In fact, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that our attitude should be like Christ. And he gives an example of what that looked like. And it's like, whoa, I am so far away from that, right? That's kind of how I I feel today even. Lord, help me to become more like you. To be in Christ means that you're inseparably joined to him and nothing can separate you from him. That means when you start tomorrow, you are inseparably with him. When Tuesday comes, he is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can take you away from being in a relationship with him. That's why I can stay established in him, rooted in him. To be in Christ means you're also joined to a new family. Where the dividing lines that separate and categorize people have been erased. This is what, friends, by the way, was the best promo for the church in its early foundations. People would watch as Gentile and Jew, which had been basically racially segregated, all right, come together in fellowship. They would see somebody who was a slave and somebody who was a slave owner come together into a place of worship and there were no labels. They would see where a man would be treated in the same way as a woman would be. And friends, that was revolutionary in the day in which the gospel was being established in Rome. Women were actually being brought to a standing where men were. Children were valued. This was unheard of. This means that when the body of Christ comes together, my labels are gone. I am a child of God. And that means as a church, friends, that means when we look around and maybe we see people that are different than us, no, they are more like us than different from us because they're part of the body of Christ. And so we remove labels by the door and we say here, we're family. We're people who are in Christ together. To be in Christ means to have a new identity not based on your past or your current status. And aren't you so glad that's the case? The Bible tells us that if I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. So my identity is not built on what I was. And some of you are so glad for that because your was story is not very, you're not very proud of your was story. But we don't live there anymore. 
That means we have a new identity, not based on my current status, the things I'm still working out, or in my past, but I have a new identity in Christ. And to be in Christ is to have everything that you need to thrive in this life and enjoy eternal life. Here's the thing. Christianity is not just about the sweet by and by someday in eternity we're going to get our reward and praise God for that. It is about thriving in the way you live right now. When Jesus said, I have come that you might have, he said, life and have it more abundantly, it wasn't about just eternity. It was about thriving in the way you live today. That means finding victory in your todays. That means not letting life beat you up, but being an overcomer in the midst of what you do now. It's thriving in the everyday life. And the good news is the gospel works in everyday life if we will listen and apply it. And then Paul kind of shifts his focus from thanksgiving prayer about their faith to what it actually looks like to have faith in Christ. Let's look at it. Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God, and then he begins to listen. But I want to pause here and just say, this is how I'm praying for Neighborhood Church. As the pastor of this church, this is my prayer, especially in this season, this series that we're in for us. But friends, this is a great prayer for you to take off the pages of Colossians and pray it over your kids, pray it over your marriage. Pray it in your life group. This is a great way to lift each other up. But he goes on to pray, and he says, it's not just something I asked once upon a time. I continually ask God for these things. And he says, what? To fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then what I like about this is Paul shares the primary things that he is praying for them that I believe equally apply to us today. What he's praying for, I desperately need. What he's praying for, I know you need. So let's break it down. He prays for God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Now, I've asked the question before, and most people would, would agree with this, that say, I want to know what God's will is for my life. In fact, what I've discovered is that people do better in life when they know what's expected of them. As a person who is a leader, and I have people that work here at the church as volunteers and as paid staff, they want to know what it is that I feel as I'm leading this church. Why? So they can do what they do best. Here's the good news about God's will. It's not some mysterious secret. He wants you to know it, and he's actually revealed his will to us in a general sense. It's called the Bible. If you haven't been reading the Bible, you're missing out on God's general will for how you should live your life and how it can apply to everyday stuff. But then I also know this, that God has a plan for me, that he has put Kelly on planet Earth for a reason, and he has a purpose for that. And if I'm not spending time reading or praying, then I'm not really going to know what his will is for my life. But, God, but Paul says, I'm praying that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will. 
This word fill that is used in, in the Greek language means a couple of things. One of those is, is the example of something that is fully equipped. For example, in the day in which Paul traveled, he traveled by ship. Pretty much everywhere he went, he had to kind of go by boat eventually to get to the places he went to. And it speaks of a boat that is fully equipped for the journey ahead, that word fill. And so what he's basically saying is, I'm praying that you'll be filled, fully equipped with the knowledge of God's will that you might do well in the voyage of life. You know, here's the thing. God wants you to succeed in this world. It may not always feel like he does, but he does. And he is giving you his wisdom, his will to navigate through the voyage of this life. That's why I need to read God's word on a regular basis so I can feel that I am fully equipped with the knowledge of his will. But there's another way this word is used in the Greek language, and it means basically to be under the control of. For example, in the Bible, he talks about people who are filled with anger, which means they are people who are controlled by their anger. He talks about being filled with wine, which means people do things that lead to debauchery and what happens when we're under the control of a substance. He talks about being under control of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit then controls the way we live our life. So this idea of being filled with God's will or his, his, his knowledge of his will means that we would actually be dictated and controlled, not harshly, not like we're some kind of puppet or robot, but that we would yield to his will for our life and live under the control of that, which means we'll be different in the way we act with our, with our kids and with our spouses because we have his will that begins to govern how we're going to live. And sometimes what that means when we pray is that we spend less time talking to God and actually more time listening. And some folks go, but Kelly, I don't know how to know how to listen for God. Just quickly, a couple of things. One, when you're reading the Bible, you're actually listening from God. That is his word to us that every human being has the privilege of. But secondly, there are times that when I'm reading God's word, I will feel something within me kind of grip me by by the heartstrings and say, pay attention to this. This is for you. And so then what I know is as I'm reading that, God is beginning to reveal something in me he wants to work on. And here's something I discovered about God's will. If it seems to be contrary to what I feel like doing, it's probably his will. All right? So I just kind of know that when I'm reading that and it's easier to move toward complacency, it's easier to move toward being, you know, non-engaged, and he's calling me to engage, it's probably God's will. And it's always going to line up with what Scripture tells me. It's not going to say, hey, go do something that's contrary to what I've already told you in the Bible. But I want to live in that, which means also my prayer life needs to change from my will be done. Hey, God, here's my wish list of things I want you to do to your will. God, here's my day. What do you see doing through me in this day? How can your will be made known today, right now, where I live? And then that knowledge of his will must be translated into our everyday life. It's one thing to know the will of God. It's another thing to let it actually get into your life, to work itself through. So when he prays that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will, he talks about these two words. He says spiritual wisdom. He talks about this word wisdom. And wisdom simply means to know the things of God, to know the first principles, the basic things about God, which we find in his word. But that's not enough. The other aspect comes with understanding, which means how to take those things we learn about God by reading the Bible and then do it in life. So being filled with his 
Knowledge of God's will means to understand what it is and then actually to do it, to have the understanding of how this works right now in my life. In fact, William Barclay, who was a, a noted scholar, wrote this, a man may quite easily be a master of theology and a failure in living. Maybe you know somebody like that. They seem to know everything, but they're a failure in living. He goes on to say they're able to write and talk about the eternal truths and yet helpless to apply them to the things which meet him every day. The Christian must know what Christianity means, not in a vacuum, but in the business of living. And here's something I've discovered. My life and God at work in my everyday life shows me so much about him if I'll pay attention to it as I live it out in the stuff of life. But he goes on to say, why do we need that? So that. We need his wisdom applied in our life so that, he goes on to say, that we might live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. You know, if I was to be honest, I want to live a life that is worthy of my Lord. The one who died on a cross for me. Even though I was absolutely sinful and didn't deserve it, he extended to me salvation through Christ. How can I live a life worthy of him? How can I please God? And so he, he talks about how that can happen. He, he breaks it down for us to understand, well, here's how you actually can live a life worthy of the Lord and please God in every way. And so the first one is to bear fruit in every good work, to bear fruit. This talks about how Christians need to work their faith out in the way that they live. In my backyard, I have a grapevine, and it's really large. And right now, the grapes are just turning purple. And I got a lot of them. And then and I got so many, they're falling on the ground now and, and attracting b- bugs and bees and all kinds of stuff. But here's the thing we noticed. When a plant is healthy, it produces healthy fruit. It's just, it's just the nature of the way things are made. What Paul's talking about is, look, if you're in Christ, if you're rooted in him, then an obvious healthy product should be the way you live your life, the fruit of your life, which, by the way, has to be evidenced by those around you. I know, I'm not a smart guy, but I know it's a grape vine in the backyard because there's grapes growing on it, okay? I'm not going, why is this apple tree growing grapes, right? I, I can tell what it is by the fruit. And Jesus said the same thing about our lives, that by our fruit, people will know. But my fear is that a lot of the fruit that is born by Christians is toxic, It's not helpful. And Paul says, this is is not the way it should be, friends. We should be bearing good fruit in the way that we live our lives. But unfortunately, Christians don't always put the truth that they believe into practice. In fact, there was a guy that wrote a book. His name was Neil Postman. wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Interesting read, but he writes this. He says that television has habituated its watchers to a low information action ratio that people are accustomed to learning good ideas and then doing nothing about them. Let me contemporize that to today. Some of you are Pinterest users out there, and you pin like a bazillion things. Here's my question. How many of those things that you have pinned have you done? Right? I give my wife a hard time during first service, and she's not here, I don't believe, second service, but I, I can still share this with you. My wife um, on Facebook will find a recipe 
and then she'll share the recipe she finds so it gets saved to her feed, right? So she can find it later. How many of those recipes has she made at home? None. (laughs) And I go to her Facebook feed, and I'm like, I get hungry every time I go to your Facebook feed, and you've made none of these things. Why? Because what happens in our culture, especially today, is we have a high dose of information, but low action. We're the most informed culture probably ever in our history, yet we're the lowest with acting upon our information. And friends, the same thing is true with Christians. We are so well-informed. I mean, today, there are scads of books about living out your Christian faith. You can, you can go online and podcast just about any religious Christian preacher you want and hear great information and download great information. And you can sit through life groups, you can sit through studies, and you can go to a women's Bible study, and you can do all of these things, and we are so informed. But it does not translate to living it out. But some people say, well, doesn't Paul normally talk against works? I mean, isn't he like the guy that says that works are bad? Paul only talks about works being bad in relation to you believing that your works save you. Because he says it's not by works of righteousness that I have done that I am saved, right? His works was speaking against the, the Jewish people who believed they were saved simply because they nodded their head toward the law. But he tells us otherwise the good works are actually healthy for Christians to do. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, another letter he wrote, he says this, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by what? Faith. That your faith does something. It produces something. It's called work. There's actually good things that happen when we are faith-filled people. He goes on to say this, Your labor, that's work, which is prompted by something, love. Love for God and and love for each other. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. What is it? To do good works, which, by the way, God has prepared in advance for us to do. So he's not against good works. In fact, this is the challenge of today's Christian movement. We need to be better at doing what we know. We don't have a shortage, friends, of knowing. We have a shortage of doing in the Christian movement today. Paul doesn't praise the Colossians simply because they have learned the truth from Epaphras. He praises them, he commends them because they put it into action. He says, I saw and heard about the faith that you've had that moved you to love, to love God and and to love others. And then he says that we're to grow in the knowledge of God, not just to bear fruit, which is a product of living rooted in Jesus, but then also to grow in the knowledge of God. There was a catchy book written called All I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And while it's cute and there's some funny things about the book and the things that are shared, um, unfortunately, this reflects the attitudes of some Christians toward growing in the knowledge of the Christian faith. They stayed in kindergarten. They know just enough to get them on this side of salvation. They're not self-feeding. They're not reading the Word. They're not trying to grow in the knowledge of God. In fact, they're a whole lot like this gentleman right here in this video. Go ahead, Terry. Is your faith still in kindergarten? You know, you might have been a follower of Christ for a very long time, but you've not grown in knowing him better. And you just do the routine of coming to church, 
singing the songs that are there, but not letting it translate into your everyday life. Let me just tell you, what you learn in kindergarten is not going to be enough to keep you going. And the reason a lot of folks stay stunted in their growth is because they're not willing to go through the hard work of learning it. Life teaches us lots of stuff about God, and a lot of times we won't let ourselves endure through the challenging things that actually do shape and develop our faith. And so we need to grow in the knowledge of God. How do I do that? Well, you read. Read the Bible. I know that's a hard discipline. It takes time. But you start there. You come under sound teaching. You do take the opportunity to to glean from the resources that are out there in, in measure, high measure. But get to know him. Don't stay content with, well, it's good for me. This routine works. Just going to church, singing a few songs, going home, coming back next week. But yet you're, you're stunted spiritually. We need mature Christians who are growing in the knowledge of who he is. And he says to be strengthened with all power because knowledge alone does not enable obedience. Isn't that true? Just because you know doesn't mean it translates to obedience. So we need the power to do that. And here's the good news. It comes from the Holy Spirit. We don't have to do this alone. God wants us to actually apply what we know. And so he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. Christianity is not a do-it-yourself religion. We can only be strong in God through the work of the Holy Spirit. But Paul recognizes that. Christian growth takes place in a world that's hostile to our good works and to our testimony of who Christ is. That's why we need the strength to endure. So he talks about having this strength from all power to do two things. One of them is to endure. Endurance has to do with your circumstances that you're going through. And here's the thing. Endurance isn't just kind of like making it through. Endurance isn't just gritting your teeth and taking whatever comes your way and, and wait, you know, just can't wait till it's over. Endurance is actually this idea of a conquering endurance. That whatever is coming your way in life, you stand in the strength of God, and you can endure. Isn't it remarkable when you watch somebody with great faith endure horrific things and maintain their faith through the whole thing? We look at that and go, wow, that's inspiring. You know what that is? That's endurance. That's a conquering endurance that no matter what life brings, we can stand strong through it because we know who God is, and even though we may not understand why we're going through this, we trust His will is good for us, and we can endure The other word is patience. Patience has more to do, not with our circumstances, but with people. How many know we need that with people? As we're parenting, as we're in relationships with our spouse or our girlfriend or as we're in relationship with our family, extended family, we need patience because this takes a quality of our heart and mind to be patient because there will be people who through their unpleasantness and their maliciousness and their cruelty, your patience will not allow that to turn you bitter. When people are unwilling to change, that will never drive you to despair about it. You'll be patient with them. It also means that when they're being stupid or foolish, that won't drive you to become irritated, but you'll be patient with them. That means that when they're unlovely, that won't alter your love for them. He prays for endurance, that we will be steadfast no matter what situation happens, and that we'll be patient, that we will resolve that no person can defeat us by the way they act, that we will show ourselves to be patient, to be godly in the way we interact. And then he says, finally, to give joyful thanks to the Father. This is all stuff that pleases God, bearing fruit, 
This idea of, of having the knowledge of who God is, to grow in that knowledge, to allow that then to also be, produce in us gratitude. G.K. Chesterton remarked these words. He said, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. You know, what, what I notice here in this passage is that since Paul commands thanksgiving, it must mean it doesn't automatically happen. And how many know it doesn't? Thanksgiving and gratitude is not an automatic default for most of us as Americans. Our default setting is complaining. Isn't that true? We didn't quite get stuff our way, so we complain. And chronic complainers are people who will never experience this sense of peace that God has for us when we're rooted in Christ. Because we're always going to feel like God is cheating us out on something. But instead, gratitude is, no matter what my circumstances are, I am content in Christ. Paul learned this. Paul said that in all circumstances, I should give thanks because this is God's will. And Paul faced a lot of circumstances, from being imprisoned, beaten nearly to his death, being stoned with large boulders thrown at him until he was left for dead, being shipwrecked, being cast out of cities after cities because of his message. This is a guy who faced a lot of circumstances. And in one of his most horrific moments when he was chained inside a prison, beaten, his back opened and bloody, do you know what he did? He began to sing a song of praise right in the midst of that horrific moment that everybody in the prison heard. Friends, is that the kind of life that we have? No, a lot of us act like whipped Christians who complain about it and murmur about it and shake our fist at God about it and don't recognize that He calls us to gratitude no matter what comes our way. This is hard for a culture who feels entitled that life should be good, handed to me on a silver platter. But Christianity is not that way, friends. You ever discovered that? Hardship comes. Things that don't make any sense come. And we don't understand them. But what I can do is right in the midst of that, I can say I am choosing not to be the victim here. I'm choosing instead to give him thanks. There was a lady I'm sure you've heard of. Her name is Helen Keller. She was not only blind, but also deaf. I mean, these are things that are primary, it would seem, for living out the human life. And she had neither. And she was once talking about gratitude, and this is what she said. She claimed that so much had been given to her that she had no time to think about what had been denied her. I mean, she could have whined and complained about not being able to see, not being able to hear, but instead she said, I am so overwhelmed by what I have been given that I have no time to think about what I've been denied. You know what? In American culture, we flip those, don't we? We hoard what we have, ungrateful, and we are unsatisfied because we don't have what's been denied us. Friends, it's time to learn that he said, you know what? In all circumstances, give thanks. This is God's will. You might be in a circumstance right now where you're going, Kelly, I'm not feeling very thankful. I got a lot of stuff hitting the fan right now, and it is not good. Can you find gratitude right now in what you're going through? Can you find something to praise Him for?
to thank him for? Because if not, here's what you can. He says in this letter, he says, you know what? That we've been called from darkness to his light. That we have had redemption of our sins in Christ Jesus. Sometimes I got to remind myself of those things. So today as we kind of kick off this rooted in Christ, understand that the essential ingredient is that we have faith in Christ, and when we have that, we do the things that actually please Him and desire to bear fruit for Him, to grow to know Him better, to face whatever comes our way. So as we begin this series, maybe some of you today, what we need to do as we start this thing is just you just recommit yourself to faith in Christ because you've let it slide. You become complacent. You're stuck in kindergarten, and you're wondering if there's more for you to do. The answer is yes, there is. But it starts by being rooted in Christ. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. And as we close this thing today, if you're here and you're saying, Kelly, I just feel like I've been just eking out a Christian existence, but it hasn't really amounted to much. But I am going to renew my faith in Christ today. It doesn't mean you've lost it. It just means you let it kind of grow cold. But if you're saying today, I I just want to recommit, I want to renew faith in Christ. Just raise a hand and say, that's me, Kelly. I want to do that today. Thank you. Anybody else? Hands going up. Thank you. Let me pray with you. Father, you see these hands, and you know what's going on in their life right now. You know the things that have made it hard for them to really even have faith right now. But I pray that as they make this commitment to you right now, today, anew and afresh, that God, this will translate into the way they live right now and tomorrow and the next day and the next day because when they make this kind of commitment, life is going to come at them at full speed. But you're with them. You're their strength in them as they find their faith in you. They will stand strong. So God, I pray for them this week that they've made this commitment today, but that will carry them through and how they interact in their workplace, how they act at school, how they interact with their friends and neighbors and their family. God, I pray there will begin to be a marked difference because their faith is not in themselves. It's not in their circumstances. It's not in our culture. It's in you. And help us to have open hearts as we begin to pursue now in Colossians how that really looks in everyday life to keep you center, rooted in who you are, how that flows over into our lives. God, we look forward to learning more about that. In Jesus' name, amen. 